Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're doing well. February is now over, and we are in the third month of 2020. Um, how you doing? I'm still trying to catch up, in all honesty. <laughs> I'm still trying to catch up. I'm behind, but that's okay. At least I know I'm behind. <laughs> uh, it's sort of hard not to be aware of it. Anyways, on this episode of the podcast, I had Stev- Stephanie. Stephanie, I'm sorry, dog. Messed up your name. Stephanie. Mm, let me get her full name. Zamora. Right? Yeah, Stephanie Zamora. She, um, friend of mine, friend of the podcast, she works for the Colibri Center, worked for the Colibri Center, um, which is a human rights activist group, nonprofit organization that um, uh, assists in um, identifying the disappeared loved ones that have tried crossing the border, uh, loved ones of people who have tried crossing the border. Um, and this is essentially what this podcast is about. We discussed um, how... She got involved with that kind of work, um, what the the work entails, details involved in it. Um, and yeah, it's pretty great work in all honesty. Um, it feels like something that isn't mentioned or talked too much about uh, when it comes to like the, the border issues and stuff like that with the migrants and crossing and stuff. Um, the death, that's not really mentioned too often. Um, and this is squarely what the organization Colibri does. Um, and it was nice. It was good to talk to Stephanie about all this because I'm not informed at all. I'm, I'm, I'm barely informed. So it was interesting to listen. Um, and I think you guys would find it fascinating as well. So, yeah, I don't have any announcements besides the fact that, I mean, uh, the 14th of March is the reading series. Go check that out. If you're free, you know, you know. Other than that, um, yeah, yeah, I'm going to play you guys out with You Don't Know the Half of It by DJQ. Cool. Cool.
Hi, Steph. Hey, friend. Thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks um, for having me. Of course. Um, just to start off, uh, what's your first memory? My first memory? Mm -hmm. My first memory... I have two of them that go back and forth. Mm. Um, it's from when I was a little kid in Mexico. I was probably two, three years old, but mm -hmm. I remember it so vividly. Um, one of them is playing in my Nana's backyard yeah. with my other cousin, Kevin. And so my mom used to always have me like super, super clean. Like I was her first kid, right? So she always had me in these like crazy, ridiculous dresses and like these big bows and like spotless, right? Like uh -huh. super clean. And I guess this day my, my tia was watching me, uh -huh. me and her kid. And uh, me and him were playing outside, I guess. And I like sat with my legs like open in the backyard in a bunch of mud. And I just started like <laughs> scooping the mud up to my dress and into my lap and i clearly i even remember like the pants my tia was wearing my tia was wearing these like really cool red pants i remember and i'm like three so i don't even know how i remember this but i remember my mom coming over to the backyard and just going in on my tia like what is wrong with you why would you let her get dirty just like going crazy because my mom would never let one speck of dirt ever on me wild so i remember that <laughs> wild yeah and then i remember also riding my tricycle with my mom in mexico too when uh -huh. we when we used to well i was born there so mm -hmm. until, until the age of three uh i remember riding my tricycle <laughs> and my mom was riding her bike right behind me <laughs> and i'm sorry it's just so funny that we're, i'm riding right and i guess I slowed down. I must have slowed down or something. But my mom like kept going in her bike, and her bike tire like got the back of my ankle, oh my and I god. have a scar still. I've had it my whole life. Oh my god! And she just like, like the tire just like burned my foot, just like got me right. And my mom obviously freaked out, and like I've always had that scar there, so th I feel like that's why I always have that memory because right. I always had the scar. So those are my two first memories i guess that's wild that's yeah. so funny um so where in mexico did you were you, were you born i was born in culiacan sinaloa culiacan. but i was raised in la cruz de lota which is a really small town in between culiacan and mazatlan which are like the two big cities and one mm. of two of the big cities in sinaloa wild yeah okay I've, i don't even know if i've ever been in sinaloa in all honesty it's beautiful it's very tropical that's what i've heard I, I remember i had a friend in high school who like who always had great things to say about Sinaloa or like Culiacan because he was he was from there, but I never went. I never went. I like I just heard some stories, some you know some wild ass stories about it and everything. Well, yeah, everyone he hears the wild stories, but it's also a really beautiful place and it's home of the longest boardwalk in the world. For yeah, real? No, yeah, Mazatlan has the longest boardwalk bo boardwalk or malecon in the world. It's wow. literally is huge. that how you say it in Spanish? Malecon. Malecon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a bad word. It's not a bad word. <laughs> it means boardwalk. For real? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Damn. And then and then you guys moved over here, right? Well, we didn't move. We, you, like, migrated you here. migrated. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was in 1998. My mom and I migrated to the U.S. I was three, and she was probably 21. Wild. Um, or what, 20. What, what was the decision? In, in, in what, what caused the decision to migrate? So my mom got together with my dad very young at 15 years old. And I mean, Whoa. you know, it's a different culture. It's a yeah. different time. Um, Continue. Yeah, she's already a woman. Right, right, right. right. And uh, she was with my dad um, 
from the age of 15 and i mean in the like in the culture that you know we are born into mm. if you are with a, a, a man or a boy or a guy mm -hmm. you are with them right like right she had to like go live with him at that age right um so she lived with him and you know his family at a very young age and she had a really hard time living with them uh there was uh -huh. a lot of abuse involved there was a lot of mm. really um yeah you know these are things that she's told me as i've gotten older of course right and just told me her truth about what it was to live there what it was like to have a relationship that serious so young and mm. because they they you know lived together and had this like pretty serious thing mm -hmm. um they had me and at 18 um but you know the history of like all this abuse that was going on on behalf of his his mom really and mm. you know him being young and irresponsible and not probably not knowing how to raise a family or how to have a family right. how old was he he was also 18 also yeah wow. so you know my mom just kind of got to a point where she realized you know that this is no way to live this is no way to raise mm. a child um and her oldest her two oldest sisters had already um, migrated to the u.s and already had like full lives here with families and jobs yeah, and yeah. everything and actually my tia nora she's my mom's oldest sister she's the oldest of five my mom's okay. the youngest of five. Oh, wild she was the one that kept pushing her and pushing her and pushing her to come to the u.s to come here like you and so your tia was already over here my tia was already over here wow. with uh, she had her husband here she had kids here my wow. two cousins michelle and alex um and she, my tia nora was the one that was really just pushing my mom like hey you need to come here like mm. you're not going to be able to raise stephanie the way that she deserves to be raised you're not going to be able to give her opportunities like you and her need and at this point my mom's 20 21 years old right super young like if you think of yeah. yourself at that age I was stupid. I mean, I'm 25 now, and I'm like <laughs> a three-year-old at 21. Are you no. kidding me? Right? <laughs> I can't. No way. And so that was that. That's uh. kind of like the lead up to my mom making this decision. And she tells mm -hmm. me that, you know, my tia was telling her for a while, like, just come, like, we'll help you out, we'll support yeah. you, we'll help you get here. Um, and my mom actually tried, you know, the quote-unquote legal way to come to the United States. She, right. um, with the help of my grandparents, um applied for a passport mm. um or probably a visa mm -hmm. and for you know economic reasons or else or whatever else um it was denied to her so mm. the next step is to you know come here as an undocumented migrant right um so um the way it goes is that you know like if you're in mexico or a foreign country applying for a visa to come to the u.s you have to have some sort of like proof or some sort of something that shows that you're gonna go back to your country that you're not just gonna use the visa to oh. stay here so whether that's a job or a school or some sort of like mm. firm economic foundation that you have to come back to right she didn't have that that right. was the reason why we were leaving oh. so that's why her visa was denied interesting so um no, there's nothing keeping there's nothing that's gonna there's make nothing you come that's, back no there's nothing that's gonna make uh, us come back plus she has a three-year-old kid it just looks even worse right, right. um and Damn. she uh her and my so she tells me that like you know from one day to the next she made the decision we're leaving tomorrow mm. and that was that she said we're leaving tomorrow and we left the next day um and my grandma and 
it was me, my grandma, and my mom. We took buses all the way up to the border, and um, it was like the dead of summer, June 1998, like super hot. Like I don't, my mom tells me that she didn't really realize like how big of a risk she was taking, and I think that's like true now that people are leaving very dire situations and. Mm. They probably aren't aware of how physically dangerous and nearly impossible it is to cross a desert, right? Especially the Sonoran Desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we attempted to cross the border over the course of a week, and we were caught um, by Border Patrol three times. Back in those days, and in, in the late nineties, mm-hmm. um, you know, prevention through deterrence had already been established in nineteen ninety four, and right. and prevention through deterrence operations had a five year rollout. Yeah. So it wasn't until like probably that point where we were crossing in the late 90s to like the early, early 2000s that mm. it became more violent and more kind of impossible to cross right. the desert. Right, right, right. So we kind of just barely slid by. And, you know, back in those days, it was catch and release. You know, you if you were caught by Border Patrol, they would simply just literally release you back over to Mexico right. and yeah. just... You're not processed. You're not deported. It's Mm -hmm. not. It's not how it is today, right? Mm -hmm. But um, we were caught three times, and I remember one of the times we were caught. Mm. um, And I remember it because um, they put us in a in a jail cell, in a detention center cell. My mom and I. And I remember sitting on her lap. And I think the reason I remember that moment is because of how freezing cold that detention center cell was. Mm. La, they call them las hieleras. So really? I'm, I'm talking, you know, 20 plus years ago and they're still using them to this day. Las hieleras wow. is like, they use it to like torture you to make you remember, don't ever try this again type right, of thing. Or, of or to punish you. What mm. you did is wrong and illegal. Don't do it again type mm. of thing. Like corporal punishment, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that memory is has always been engraved in my mind I have never forgot about it. It's it's a it's a memory that constantly has come up throughout my entire life since I got to the U.S. Mm. Um, because of how of how freezing cold that place was, and you know, at least back then, I didn't get taken away from my mom. You know, they did put right. a three year old child in a jail cell and slam the door shut, right, or the the gate shut. But at least I got to sit in there with my mom. Right, you know what I mean. Nowadays, yeah. that's it's not what's clearly happening. not what happens. Uh-huh. Um. So you know, eventually we were able to cross, and I, I just, I think I remember all of this so vividly, and uh-huh. I've never forgotten it because of the fear I felt. And I probably mm-hmm. at, at three years old, you can't comprehend or rationalize fear yet. No, of course. But not. it does affect your brain and your yeah, memory hugely. So, um, you know, I remember the desert. I remember walking through it. I remember being in a group of people that were also crossing. There was other small children, mothers. Mm -hmm. And we just got really lucky to be in a group of other migrating people that really helped my mom out. Like I remember this, I swear if I saw this man again, I would remember his face. Mm. I would because I remember this man carrying me on his back when my mom was too tired Mm. and we did not know him. Wow. Like that's the camaraderie camaraderie that that, that can exist among people experiencing such a traumatizing journey. Yeah. And I remember, you know, seeing like the like huge mountains and being terrified that we would have to like climb over the mountain. But my mom reassuring me like, no, Mika, we're not we're not going to go on top of the mountain. We're just going around it like it's OK. Calm down. And like 
I really knew that I had to be quiet. Like mm. I knew that. Like I knew that I had to be quiet and I knew that I had to follow my mom and I knew that I just had to just stay calm and follow her. And I think because my mom always spoke to me as if I was an adult. Like right. always, she's always spoken to me in like very clear, direct mm-hmm. manners. She didn't bullshit with you. No, she she was very direct with me always. And I, and I think that that kind of like probably prepared my little brain to know that this is, this is something a, dangerous this is and scary. Really intense. And you got to be quiet and uh. you just got to follow your mom. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and can only imagine, um, you know, the, those mountains like really terrified me. And my mom recently told me that, you know, when we when we got to Phoenix, eventually, um, I mean, Phoenix is a valley. It's surrounded by mountains. And she said mm. that like er, in my early childhood, like I would Did be you? still terrified of mountains. Mm-hmm. Like and we're living in a valley. Like I'm just like constantly right. like, oh, my God. Right. Like, <laughs> mountains everywhere but so like did you guys did you guys stop at tucson and all no we actually ended up being able to cross through bisbee through naco arizona oh shit that's where we ended up crossing through and i remember you know pulling up to the side of a freeway and a a big white van pulled up and this van was completely stripped of um any seats any carpeting any anything any hardware it was just completely bare only the the um driver's seat was there wild and it had no windows or anything and we all just kind of crammed into the thing and laid down on the bed of the van and i remember this that's the thing that trips me out to this day like how did my brain like Dude. compact this and like burn it in my memory yeah, right? yeah yeah um i feel that it's such a moment yeah and my my mom and i were the first ones to go into the into the van mm-hmm. so my mom was like kind of like on the bump where the tire is yeah like her side was like pressed against it it because there's like i don't know how many other people people. and children so my mom's side is like pressed against the tire Mm. and i'm on top of her Mm -hmm. it's the middle of summer so that thing's burning the shit out of her and i'm crushing her with my weight and i don't know how long we rode like that like there's honestly there's some details that i'm afraid to ask my mom right there's some parts of my immigration story that or my migration story that I know that we haven't discussed and mm. I'm kind of afraid to ask, to be mm. honest with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we eventually did cross through Bisbee and made it up to Phoenix um, where my tia Nora and her um, husband at the time picked us up. And I remember he had to like carry my mom in his arms because her legs like, Give she out. couldn't walk for a week after we got to Phoenix. Done, yeah. And we were like crispy, burnt, like Dang. Toasted by the sun, <laughs> scratched up by yeah. all the brush and needles and cactus and everything. That's, but it's crazy. Yeah, we made it. My mom told me recently too. Like we we just been you know over the past year she's just kind of been for circumstantial reasons just revealing more and more thi- more and more things to me about yeah, her migration course. story. And she told me that she told herself back then you know if we are deported, I'm not gonna try this again. I'm gonna stay in Mexico because it was that grueling yeah. and that horrifying to cross but like we made it and i think you know we made it for a reason i i think both of us are here for a reason right honestly that's amazing yeah shout out to your mom for that what courage. shout out mom <laughs> what love courage. you she i mean that's incredible i can't even begin to imagine the courage it took to that's... grab your little daughter on your hip and say I'm like all right we're, we're going dipping. to the desert <laughs> we're gonna walk to the desert let's see how it goes oh. like, <laughs> uh. i'm afraid to leave my house sometimes it's too dark outside like and i have no one to be responsible for right? you know mama straight up like i think that's i think that was the major thing though is that she was responsible for somebody 
Right. That's think that's probably a, a huge big pool. Right. Yeah, huge pool. Mm-hmm. Since you did migrate so young, was it there wasn't much of a transition to like actually um what's the word for it to assimilate? Assimilate, I guess. Um I don't believe so because, you know, at 3 years from the age of 1 to 7, mm-hmm. your brain can pick up any language. Yeah. Right? So I my mom says that I learned English probably within 3 months of being in a Head Start program, which is like mm. preschool basically. Right. She said I picked up English within like three months. Um, mm. Perfectly normal. I never went to school in Mexico. I've always gone to school in the U.S. Right. I learned the language. It's bas- I'm basically native in Spanish, a native Spanish speaker and a native English speaker. So wow. the language thing was never a barrier. Yeah. And some people have gone so far as to say that I'm a I'm first generation American. I don't feel like that because I remember migrating here mm. and I remember my life in Mexico. Right. So I don't feel myself that way but because of the age that i got here it's almost like you are some people consider me a first generation american um Mm. i don't but if i didn't know your backstory dog i would have thought you did the same thing i was born here right technically i'm I'm a first generation so right exactly but that's intense because of the age i came i guess i would be considered that but i don't i don't really claim that or feel that way i don't think i mean that's not that's not technically true (laughs) yeah it's technically not so yeah that makes sense um, yeah, I don't think I, I think of myself as American for sure. Like, yeah, um, not in the nationalistic or patriotic way, obviously, yeah. but I am American. Mm-hmm. I, my consciousness doesn't exist in Mexico. My consciousness exists here in this country. And of course. Um, I don't think the same was true for my mom though, because she came here at, you know, in her so, early twenties, so, so much older. Yeah. Of the course. language barrier was there. Yeah. The cultural differences were there. Just not like on a, like a slight a slight diatribe did your mom learn english yeah my mom learned english you know working at jobs she right. also took like english classes at real Sol- real Salado college in phoenix uh-huh. with her sisters wow um and she is a fluent english speaker i Respect. mean obviously she has a little accent and everything but she's a fluent english speaker now That's amazing and the fact that she, oh, i just my mom's just like incredible woman like, <laughs> your mom's intense to, to uh, co- like uh what is it called to acquire a language mm. beyond the age of like 10 is difficult and yeah. hard now like you're in your your 20s like that's hard to do mm. like you really have to work it's, really hard really at it hard. and practice it a lot and yeah for sure probably embarrass yourself a few times and fuck up a few times but the only you way know? you learn only way you learn mm-hmm. that's that's incredible dude and does that is that experience the main reason why you find yourself working with colibri and what they do and and in all honesty would you mind elaborating what colibri does exactly yeah i mean and and just real quick and were they the first organization you worked for that worked in the lines of stuff that you do now yeah so i i always feel like working at colibri is kind of like this full circle moment that i have in my life Mm. and you know i'm really young so i know that there's going to be more opportunities for like my career to push forward but mm. it really does feel like a full circle moment working for colibri because mm. you know i walked the, the same paths that thousands of disappeared people walked and unfortunately they didn't meet the same fate that i have right and i know that i carry within me an enormous fortune that doesn't belong to me mm. and i'm supposed to share that with people that walk that path and didn't make it mm. or you know their families are waiting for them here. So mm. it definitely feels like a very like divine or like purposeful um, mission that I'm on at mm. Colibri because mm. 
you know, my mom and I could have very easily experienced that same fate. Yeah. And my grandma would have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for us. Mm. Or my tia would have been waiting and waiting and waiting mm -hmm. for us here in Phoenix. And, you know, that very, very easily could have happened. And right. that's a fear, you know, that my tia has expressed to me mm -hmm. in the recent and recently too that right, of course that week that we that took us to cross mm -hmm. she said she did not sleep one minute mm. that she was just like what if my sister doesn't make it what if her kid doesn't make it so in a way yeah i do feel very very personally connected to the work and to kind of elaborate on what the colibri, the colibri center is um we are a non-governmental non-profit organization and our mission is to end disappearance and uphold human dignity along the u.s mexico border mm. Um, we, we kind of think of our work in two halves. So one half is forensic science and investigation. Mm. And then the other half is family advocacy, family accompaniment, and, you know, just like broader advocacy kind of goals. Mm. So the first half, the forensic science and investigation entails t um, receiving calls and taking very, very detailed missing persons reports from families of their family members who were last seen alive crossing the border. Mm. Um, so we take really, really detailed missing migrant reports and currently our database has over 4,000 active missing migrant cases. Wow. Um, and that's just Colibri and that's just the people who know about us and that's just the ones we have recorded, right? That's not an exhaustive number right. and certainly not representative of the amount of disappearances that have happened across the border, How right? How much again was it? In our database alone, it's about 4,000 cases that we have um so we take these very detailed uh missing migrant reports and if the chance is available we um sample eligible families for dna um mm -hmm. and by eligible i mean you know a parent of the missing person right uh children siblings half siblings of the missing person mm. um and we take that DNA to compare to uh, sets of unidentified human remains that have been recovered here in Southern Arizona. Mm. And here in Southern Arizona at the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner, um, there are over 1,200 cases of unidentified uh, remains of migrants that have been found in, in the Southern Arizona border. Wow. Um, so we sample families for DNA. Mm. And all of this is free because we're a nonprofit, nonprofit. organization. Right. Um, we either go in person and travel to big cities, you know, LA, the Bay Area, New York, etc. Mm -hmm. Even um, we've we've even traveled to. Well, I haven't personally, but Colibri um, has traveled to uh, Guatemala to collect uh, mm. DNA samples. Oh wow! So our database, you know, the the biggest population of people that are reported as missing are Mexican. Yeah, and that's because of our proximity to the border, of to course. to the Mexican border, right, or of to course. Mexico in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next biggest group is Guatemalans. Mm. Um, so our uh, DNA and missing migrant program director, Mirza Monterroso, mm. she's from Guatemala. So, oh, wow. um, she's taken uh, a team down there to collect DNA, and then this past August, she um, went by herself and collected almost 150 DNA samples um, across wow. within um, within Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And um, so we we compare those to the sets of 1,200 cases that we have, right? right? So we're kind of limited in that way because Colibri has a very good relationship with the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner. Mm -hmm. And we have a system set up with them where they can access those missing persons reports in our database. Oh, wow. um, and we can access their database of... Um, Cross-reference. Right, they're they're labeled as uh, unidentified border crossers, mm. um, and we have access to those cases, the photos, the the crime scene, the 
you know, the police report, the anthropology reports, and we can wow. uh, compare side, literally compare side by side. Does this profile or this missing migrant report match the profile of this person that was found deceased in the desert? Wow. Um, but like I was mentioning, we're, we're a little limited in the, in manpower? the location, manpower and the locations that we can look. So mm. we have access to all of Southern Arizona, right? Right. But say someone calls and their loved one went missing in Texas, we don't have it. access to any information mm. um, because yes. it's county by county, right? Every right. county deals with or doesn't deal with migrant deaths right. in their own way. Wow. Um, so we're very fortunate here in Pima County that the medical examiners um, really took a humanitarian approach to documenting these deaths mm. and creating sort of like a, a bank, a database of their information, where they where yeah. they were found and what condition they were found. Um, mm -hmm. Full, detailed, very specific reports about the remains that are found, wow. right? Do you know what made them do that? Do you know what? I think the overwhelming amount of deaths that, that happened here in Arizona. Mm. Um, we are within, you know, the deadliest 100 miles of the sonoran desert mm -hmm. um so a lot of the deaths are recorded here and you know colibri started as um a volunteer project um it was started by dr robin reinicke back then she was a, a grad student in anthropology wow um and she was doing an internship at the uh ome uh the office of the medical examiner mm. um and she was basically handwriting all these reports and calling people and like taking handwritten reports of yeah. missing people along with um dr bruce anderson who's one of the forensic anthropologists at the at the medical examiners mm -hmm. um they were just seeing more and more and more cases as the years rolled by wow. that that people were looking for missing people so you know when someone goes missing or disip actually i should use the word disappeared because disappeared kind of um has the connotation that it was a purposeful act. Mm. Um, and we know that these are pur purposeful dis disappearances because right. of the policies enacted by our federal government, right? Mm. Um, over the years, it just started piling on and piling on because, you know, when someone disappears anywhere at with any circumstance, mm -hmm. you look in the morgues, you look right. in the hospitals, you look in jails. And yeah. that's what families do. They look at morgues, they look at hospitals, and they look at detention centers. Mm. Um, that's just like, a yeah. piece of where they look right so over the years it just starts building and building and building mm -hmm. and they realize that they need to like uh digitize this and and systemize the way that they're recording these of um, course these reports right um so the work of uh and then that is where uh, colibri was born essentially right out of this volunteer work or this uh um internship work that mm -hmm. robin reineke was doing um, and Colibri didn't become an established uh, nonprofit until 2016. So we're mm. fairly young Pretty in young. our like yeah. nonprofit phase. But the work uh, of finding missing migrants, mm. search and rescue, humanitarian aid, Colibri is was born out of a legacy of that work. That work already existed mm. here in Southern Arizona. Of course. And you know we are we are very careful to make sure that you know we we say that mm -hmm. the the work of Coalición de Derechos Humanos was already there. Mm. Colibri wasn't like this new like thing. You know, we, right, we I think our work um, is just a little more pushed forward because of that relationship with the OME and mm. the fact that we do DNA, right. that we have this science part of our work, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the work of searching for the missing, documenting the missing, 
that already existed and colibri was born out of that legacy right um so in 2016 our dna program started and mm. in the time um you know we've identified in the in the lifespan of colibri and like the work of you know robin and then colibri and this whole history yeah we've managed to identify 134 people whether that's through dna or circumstantial evidence you know mm. fingerprints tattoos location last seen alive for example right um, but yeah, like the, this was really born out of the magnitude of deaths that were being recorded in Pima mm. County. Right. Um, so that's like one half of, half of our work. Mm. Um, and just to wrap up the DNA part of what we do, that's that's mm. really like the bread and butter of our work, right? right. People come and call Colibri or message Colibri or get in contact with us because yeah. they want to know what happened to their loved one of and course. they want to know if they have passed away, right? right. Um. So we sample families for DNA, um, whether that's in like the big cities that we travel to. And we've kind of been creative about um, the ways in which we can access families that can't travel because of their uh, immigration status mm. or they're just too far away from these cities that we go to. And we, uh, Mirza, Mirza Montoroso, the DNA program manager, she um, thought of, you know, sending the DNA kits by mail to people. And that's been very, very successful in, in reaching more IDs. Yeah. Um, and these are just like creative ways that we work around. To work around it, right? You know, bureaucratic issues or, you know, mm -hmm. just issues that we face as an immigration justice organization. Yeah. Um, so when someone sample for DNA, we make it very clear that just because they're giving us their DNA, that doesn't guarantee them an answer. Of course. Um, them submitting DNA doesn't equal, you know, your loved one is among those 1,200 mm -hmm. cases. Right. It's just a hope that there is a coincidental a coincidental match. Yeah. Because even those um, 1,200 cases are like, it's just a rarity. I mean, right. It's just the, the chances of finding them. In the, right. Because there's that other layer of, you know, so the, maybe someone did pass away in the desert, but their remains have never been recovered. Yeah. That's another the layer. The desert goes through the remains pretty quickly exactly at least it's from a, what i understand i would say that the 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 desert is a very unforgiving environment mm -hmm. um if you happen to die in the desert of um, course so we make we're very transparent about the fact that you know you're not guaranteed an answer right and if you do get an answer it's not going to come for six to six months to a year mm. um we use a private lab that is not connected to the government to protect the identity and the confidentiality of these families because as you approach. can imagine we work with very a very vulnerable population yes of course um so yeah we've managed to identify 134 people and with the batch of almost 100 and 150 dna samples that mirsa took in guatemala this summer we're hoping that within the next you know six months to a year we get an even bigger batch of ids and you know it's mm. it's a bittersweet thing to for us, it's it's a victory to get an ID, right? Yeah, of course. It's a victory. Like we we solved it. We we know who this person is. We name this person. We can get them back to their family, Some so they type can of have conclusion. Yeah, so they can have like a a a proper burial, a dignified goodbye. Yeah, of course. Because every human being, regardless of where you're from, your citizenship, mm -hmm. whether you crossed a line in the desert or in between two nations, mm. it doesn't. Uh, nullify the fact that you are a human being and yeah. if you die you deserve a dignified burial and a goodbye from your family 100 percent. um so it's a it's like a success you know to get these ids and solve these cases but it's also sad that that's the news that we have to give right right 
And then at the same time, families have expressed to us that it's better to know what happened than to mm. live with uncertainty of, of course, are they alive? Are they gone? Are they yeah. okay? Do they need me? Do they not need me? Like mm -hmm. those questions that just like torment you yeah. are finally put to rest and they yeah. can finally um, have Move some on. sort of peace, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's like the first half of our work. That's pretty intense. In a nutshell. <laughs> and that's why people come to us. But yeah. while people wait those six months to a year to receive answers from the lab, mm. we have other programs that families can be involved in. And that's kind of my role. Um, Interesting. So what the other half of our work is advocacy and family accompaniment. Mm. Um, we have something called the family network, which is a, just like it sounds, a network of all the families that have cases with Colibri. Okay. And we convene them in spaces of mutual support and solidarity in different cities uh, around the country. Um, we have uh, comités or organized groups in Phoenix, Tucson, Bay Area, Los Angeles, and now New York. Mm -hmm. So every three months we make like rounds to go visit the families in person, have these very structured and formal meetings with them. So they can meet each other and create these networks, these communities. Um, mm -hmm. Because... I mean, it's it as you can imagine, having a, a disappeared loved one is very isolating. Right. And one, the reason why the family network was born was out of families' expressed desire to connect with others that others can understand the same thing. exactly that. That's that's beautiful. Right. So, um, how did that come about? Did, was that even was that even a thought, or did Colibri want to do that when it like initiated in 2016, or did um, the DNA thing start first and then you guys started getting requests? So the, the family, the thing is that, you know, all of this has been happening for the past three years. So it's mm. kind of like melded together. Of course. But um, the family network has really been fully established for the past two years mm. um, under the leadership of Ben Clark, who... Um, I find that to be genius. Yeah, it is. It's... It, 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 it's so human. Yeah, that's a, that's the bottom line of it. Mm -hmm. And um, my colleague, Ben Clark, who no longer is with Colibri, mm -hmm. he, he led the family network and really developed it from zero, right. from nothing, from yeah, like yeah. the ground up. Um, and he's, he's a very creative, very intelligent person that was given, you know, this circumstance, you know, there's families that need to connect with each other, make it happen. And mm. he did. And um now we have those in-person spaces and we also have online spaces for families that like i said can't travel because of status or they're too far mm -hmm. because we have cases uh where families have called us from 43 different states in this country and 14 different countries around the world so this is not something that just happens on our border between mexico this echoes and radiates out far beyond what we can imagine i mean People have called us from 43 states. That's crazy. Almost the entire country. Well, at least one person in almost all the states yeah. have a missing loved one on the border. That's insane. So um, It's all the states, all the mainland states. Well, besides Hawaii and... I mean, if I look at our uh, database, I could probably find like, like... Seven states? Seven states that haven't called you guys? Yeah, that's and that's probably because they don't know about us. Not because they don't exist there. Dude. Right? <laughs> The crazy. magnitude of this issue is That's insane. So ridiculous. we have like those in-person spaces. We have an online like space for families. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a zine that um, Ben came up with. Mm, um, cool. Uh, it's like, a, it's a zine called Hermandad. And um, it comes out every three months. Mm. And this zine, so every edition is a different theme mm. that uh, is like a challenge or a hardship that families have to go through. 
Um, so maybe one is anxiety, another one is uncertainty, um, maybe depression, insomnia. Uh, that sounds thing, great. Isolation, etc. Resources for these very specific topics. Right. That that are linked to specifically having a disappeared loved one because, and you know, Colibri, because the families have expressed it to us, really like to make a distinction between the grief involved with mourning someone that you know has died and you buried versus the grief of having an ambiguous loss where you don't know what happened and you don't have a concrete answer. So those two types of grief are very distinct from each other. And we like to honor that because families have expressed this over and over again. And that like, that's the reason why they feel like misunderstood mm -hmm. is because even if they try to search for, you know, counseling services, therapy services, they're treating this as if the person's gone and maybe in that person's heart and mind they're not gone yet because mm -hmm. you haven't seen their body um so in this zine we we talk about um these different issues or topics that are specifically relevant to families of disappeared migrants um and it's written by and for families of disappeared migrants so only wow. people that have like you wouldn't be able to get it because right. you don't have a case with us right yeah, yeah. um and so families submit, you know, testimonies that they want to put in there. They submit artwork, poems. And then we work with a um, psychologist at Yale that writes about coping mechanisms for that specific topic or that specific theme of that of that zine. Mm -hmm. um, people submit recipes or like stories, et cetera, of their family member to keep their memory alive. So it's like ways to connect people even further, right, um, in a very personal and intimate level. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's that's kind of like the family network in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And then my role as the advocacy director, it's kind of split in a lot of different ways. But um, me as advocacy director, I accompany the family network director, Perla Torres, mm -hmm. um, on these trips and like really connect and talk to families and see what their needs are, not only in their search, but what their ideas are for how to change this so that this doesn't happen again, so that our mm -hmm. border changes so that we approach the border in a, in a more human rights centered way. Yeah. Um, and I've built, I've started to build out, you know, a kind of like a political or legislative agenda with the families that mm -hmm. I'm hoping to present to, you know, members of Congress or decision makers as the platform that these families are, are on, that they, mm. that they need these needs met. Mm -hmm. And, um, that they need to be heard, right? And they're yeah. very specific asks. Some of them are very specific. Some of them are very broad and imaginative, but I think it's important to mm. imagine. Yeah. Um, even if it seems way out of reach, it's yeah, important yeah. to imagine, right? That's, um, that's, that's, that's so what I, an approach to take. Yeah. Um, so that's part of it. Another part is, you know, serving on delegations, immigration councils, mm. uh, doing public speaking, doing presentations, um, and then I do like comms for Colibri, which, you know, like our social media, our newsletter, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, so it's like family accompaniment, traditional advocacy, like working in coalitions, talking yeah. to members of Congress, going on delegations, et cetera. That whole, like, I feel like a professional activist almost. <laughs> and then the other pieces like communications, press, media, this kind of thing that I'm doing with you. Yeah, um, That's kind of my role at Colibri. Mm. Um, but it's all centered with, amplifying the voices and the direct experiences of families that's like the core of of, course. of advocacy at Colibri. Um, our theory of change is that those closest to the problem have the best solutions so i can empathize i can understand and i can feel for them i cannot speak for them i can right. never share 
a story the way a family can because that's not my experience so my job is to basically put a mic in their face and then plug that mic into the loudest speaker i can find of course so that their stories are heard so Mm. that this issue is brought to the table and you know in in our experience a colibri um we you know i i've noticed that other topics related to immigration justice are more discussed and more talked about um and they should be right like Mm. the the conditions in the detention centers the horrendous way we are um handling or not handling asylum seekers Mm. child separation um you name it all these horrible things that are happening at our border but death isn't something that's talked about because it's hard to talk about it Mm. people would rather deal with the living right of course then and i think also talking about death and disappearance shows this spectrum of violence and this is the extreme end of it Mm -hmm. colibri works at the extreme end of violent border policy wow that is xenophobic and racist and we should call it what it is the deaths that are happening at our border Mm. are i call it premeditated mass murder Mm. premeditated mass violence why because it's purposeful there's Mm. policy attached to why people are crossing in the routes that they're crossing and there's history attached Mm. to it and there's patterns involved so when you see a pattern you know that there's a source for that pattern right so i see that really we we tend to think of the border and the issues at the border as like a right now issue like a right it's happening right now like it's, it's been it's been forever but right? really the it started milita- in like the 90s right the militarization of the border has mm-hmm. been going on for 25 years for mm-hmm. my entire lifetime yeah obviously we have a recently impeached leader that <laughs> um has exacerbated that and mm. has made it overtly and violently racist mm. but this isn't new this the militarization of the border and the violence that that exists um in our borderlands has been backed really by both parties Mm. starting with the clinton administration in the 90s yeah and i mean we had the highest levels of deportation and the and the peak hiring levels of border patrol during the obama administration so democrats their hands are bloody too Mm -hmm. um so we we um really like to contextualize Mm. um the political history of the border to understand how it's gotten this bad right it didn't happen three years ago with trump it has been decades in the making it's been a build-up so um you know the the thing about you know if i take off my colibri hat and just talking to you as an activist or as an advocate Mm -hmm. there's a game you have to play you i can talk to you like this like this is premeditated mass violence i Mm -hmm. can tell you that right right if i'm in certain spaces you have to learn how to say that in different ways that connect with the person that you're talking to to get your point across Mm. right it's like a game of chess almost Uh and i've learned that in this role i learned you know you talk like this to certain people you talk like that to certain people right and the end goal is not you know the end goal is to get families answers and Mm -hmm. stop this suffering right that's that's my end goal that's it so you know sometimes i wish i could be as blunt and direct as i can be with you or you know right other um colleagues of mine in the immigration justice world but in certain spaces you got to say things a certain way it just turns some people off and everything yeah and like and then it stops it from it's me. a strategy right like right, of you got to be strategic with your words 100 right so yeah that's kind of my role as an advocacy director is like bringing huh. this to light and highlighting voices how did you find colibri so um i studied linguistics and anthropology at u of a 
and I took a class before you before you even <laughs> got, like what what pointed you into linguistics oh. and anthropology because that's uh, linguistics is like not many people go to linguistics dog I haven't heard too many people talk like no I wanted to study linguistics like well, <laughs> like I would that's, that's something I would say but even even when I was going to school I didn't even think about that being like a course you know now i know that it exists and i'll be like damn i would have loved that but how did you even know about linguistics and what made you go like linguistics is the way what, what? well when go? i first it's kind of embarrassing but when i first Embarrass got yourself you were like you, you're doing so great on like on I a got, human I level gotta, i gotta now, like now you show, show humanize your, this show your human dog okay. <laughs> I, I am human I'm not, a, I'm not a robot i'm not perfect but what, what was when, it <laughs> fuck <laughs> When I first got to U of A, <laughs> fuck. When I first uh, got to U of A, I was majoring in um, astronomy. I oh, that's awesome. really, really believed that I was going to be an astronaut. <laughs> Yo, <laughs> what? What? What's wrong with that? That's great. There's nothing wrong with that, but like an astronaut, like that's great. I, I couldn't even capture the amount of work that would. I was like, oh, I'm going to study astronomy. I'm gonna, I'm going to work for NASA really you're gonna shout out NASA? dog you shot high that's not how it works baby girl <laughs> you shot high where did that the joys want to be an astronaut I or, did. did you i did. Really? really wanted to be an astronaut oh, so bad I yo really why what was it what was the push what was the push what what, what made you what? I, I mean it was cool space is cool like yeah, yeah, every yeah. little kid is obsessed with space like the you planets wanted, and you legitimately be an astronaut i yo, legitimately legit 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 wanted to be an astronaut that's amazing <laughs> it's fucking embarrassing that's amazing like my heart's warm dude no i would have never guessed i mean i'm 18 years old thinking i'm gonna be an astronaut like girl grow up like an astronaut probably felt that way at 18 dog like that's not that's not that's not bad what but anyways <laughs> after that failed <laughs> Did you find out how much work it was? After I found out all the math classes I had to take, I There's was like... There's a lot of math, dog. It's, it's, you know what? It's only math. <laughs> Let me be undecided on my major for a little bit and just okay. kind of figure it out. So then when I was undecided, I I took a intro... or It was like an intro to linguistics or like the human race and language or something like yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah. It was like a 100-level course or whatever. That's awesome. And I took it with... Um, Dr. Amy Fountain, who's an, a brilliant linguist at, at the University of Arizona. And by the way, the University of Arizona is known as the MIT for linguistics. Like we lead the charge in uh, linguistics and the study of language. Are you serious? Yeah. And now Noam Chomsky, who's known as the, you know, the modern the father of linguistics, teaches at linguistics. the U of A. Yeah, I know. I, thought, I realized that. So, I'm yeah, gonna, we're I'm, like. I'm going to go back to school, dog. I'm going to study it. linguistics. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's interesting. but What happened? What happened? I took this class with her and I just found it so fascinating that mm. we could break down language so intensely, like so mm. precisely in all these different branches, like syntax, phonetics, phonology, the, the, the anatomy of how we speak. It doesn't just involve your lips and your tongue. Like there's a whole Fault deal. It starts dog, in your stomach right and like, here. actually it starts in your brain. I, it's crazy. Dog. Um, <laughs> and also language. language distinguishes us mm. as animals. As a, like, uh, yeah, as an animal we are animals right mm -hmm. but we are like i don't, I don't want to say sophisticated or advanced but we have this strange ability to share each other's mind we have a way of organizing sounds arbitrary sounds mm -hmm. how what you and i are saying right now is arbitrary arbitrary as and fuck. somehow our brain we're like yeah i know exactly what you're saying 
and make sense of it mm -hmm. how dog because animals make noise they make arbitrary noise yeah. they chirp they bark but they communicate as well they whistle they communicate as they communicate but not their to, ideas not to our cannot level. be organ like mm. we language is the way we organize the world mm -hmm. i heard recently that language is actually a form of synesthesia of what synesthesia i'm not sure what that no, is no it's when uh like you know how some people can see color when they hear sounds mm -hmm. you ever heard of that yeah, when yeah. their senses cross yeah. so language itself is a form of synesthesia because what we do is we, we we hear sounds and hear meaning right and it's arbitrary sounds like hugely the word apple like it's just a random it's clash a, of sounds sounds yeah but we instantly thought of apple right so Love i that. found that super fascinating and Dog. i just decided to study linguistics and should have stumbled into linguistics class goddamn <laughs> i just stumbled into it and i was blown away and then that class we got to like create our own language as we're learning these different branches of, of linguistics of like how language is created and organized every week you're adding to your language and making more words out of it I'm about and to like, go to school again you, dog. you make up a word right you can literally make up any word because sound is these sounds are arbitrary but you you attach meaning to that little sound and then you make words and you make sentences and you have a whole language. And then we had to make up like a place where the language is spoke. It was really cool. Um, wow. So I just got really into it. I A lot of people struggled in that class, but I was so like excited about it. And I was like, I love this. This is amazing. And linguistics is a branch of anthropology. Um, it's, it's, so there's like forensic anthropology, mm -hmm. cultural anthropology, linguistic yeah. anthropology. So a lot of the classes were, cross-listed and i started taking a lot of anthropology classes nice. um and my main focus was as i like learned more i i got really into sociolinguistics which is like mm. how does language affect the way that we organize ourselves in society mm. how does it affect the way we treat each other huge how we categorize each other mm. how we just make this world turn like how does yeah. language add to that right um and from there, I was able to um, get more into uh, linguistic anthropology and really focus on how, specifically, how language affects race and racism. Mm. And that's how I got really into anthropology. Wow. So you're studying how humans are organizing themselves in society, but how do we do that specifically through language? Mm. How do we perpetuate racism subtly or overtly um, with our language? Mm -hmm. um, and then I took a class called discourse analysis where you you know you take a text you take a, a sentence or a paragraph and you dissect it mm. you know from micro to macro so you know this person said this phrase but what do they really mean by that mm. right type of thing and then it was a way for us to start to learn how language is used to structure our society and it was really fascinating to me. And I just kept getting deeper and deeper. And then I, I started working with uh, Dr. Roth Gordon. Mm -hmm. She is a linguistic anthropologist at the U of A. And um, she teaches classes like race and language where literally you get to learn how we use language to create and perpetuate racism mm. and how we use language to distinguish race. Mm. And then she also teaches a class called uh, Race, Ethnicity, and the American Dream. And I started doing research with her, um, basically studying and uh, gathering data showing how um, black English is is appropriated by corporations and companies to, you know, exploit black culture, yeah. but distance themselves from blackness. 
um and i was doing this with my yeah and i can (laughs) i mean that's a whole other thing we can have a whole other podcast about (laughs) that because we're we're actually publishing a paper hopefully it comes out within the next year Um, it was me um my one of my really 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 good friends one of my best friends jessica harris Mm. Uh, she she now lives in dc um her and i were like working on it individually like we both wrote papers about it oh shit and then uh dr roth gordon was like hey Hey, you you yeah come here come to my office you both were thinking the same thing yes (laughs) and she was just blown away because like you know she just like our generation is all social media twitter like yeah we can pick things up and we can gather all this data and we don't even know we're doing that so we organized it and wrote a paper but I was able to also um, preceptor in that class race, ethnicity, and the American dream. Mm-hmm. And it's like we wrote a curriculum and we picked out materials for kids, for students to study that aren't traditional, you know, academic journals and like mm. peer reviewed this and that. It was like real life examples like tweets, like social media posts, like articles, like podcasts, mm. videos, um, more a more like a millennial or modern approach to like teaching. Yeah. Because like. You can teach about racism, you know, like the civil rights movement, like all that stuff and like all these movements that happened in the last millennium. Mm-hmm. But that kind of at, like perpetuates the idea that racism is over, that racism is a thing of the past. And right. it's not. We need more. We, we need more present examples. Yeah, because it still exists. And of course, we're still living in it. Right. Yeah. Um, so we were able to teach students about uh, systemic and institutionalized racism. Like what are ways that you don't even think twice about that perpetuate racism right so a class was intense dude we had Mm. that class like it's meant to open your eyes in a very blunt and abrupt way to show you that racism still exists racism isn't over just because we had a black president racism isn't over just because we don't have segregation anymore we still do have segregation and let me show you how we have it right kind of thing and that class was intense for a lot of a lot of students because these are freshmen you know they're like coming out of public school totally like blinders right here to mm. like reality mm. and you're just telling them like boom racism still exists and they're just like no it doesn't oh my god like their brains are like imploding right <laughs> so it was a lot of there's a lot of like chaos and tension in that class so there's a lot of learning going on and right, we right, had right. a believe it or not i don't under i'll never understand this man and i don't want to give him too much of my time but we had a student that was that would literally wear full Trump gear yeah. every day to this class about racism. Yeah. Why? So you can talk about him on a podcast? Yeah, but... F- <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just trying to like show you the dynamic of that yeah, class. Yeah. There was kids was, that were like... Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> there was kids that were like, yeah, we knew that. We experienced this every day. Right, Thanks for telling these privileged like, I'm glad. blind people. I'm glad this is being said in Thank class. Thank you. Thanks, and God. other people that were like, no, you guys are you guys are exaggerating. This can't be real. No, no, no. Like, for, I'll give you an example. What? Like, there was this, we were talking, we had this section on environmental racism. Mm. And we have we had this map of um, nuclear waste sites or, like, places where you, like, leave nuclear waste. Or yeah. Like, exact, uh, et cetera. How close it was, like, what? Yeah, it, it was, like, they were all around black neighborhoods in Detroit. Yeah. And this kid was, like, he was looking at the map. He's, like no no this has to be a coincidence like this this can't be on purpose like he was literally like having a crisis like (laughs) no this can't be (laughs) i'm glad you're awake dude it's okay we're like it's okay honey you're gonna see more of this welcome to real life dog (laughs) so i mean that's how i started studying um 
linguistics uh linguistics and anthropology and they kind of melded together and mm -hmm. i got to really focus my studies and my research on critical race theory wow um and learn about it and write about it and teach about it so that's kind of like my my roots and my foundation for like my activists and like yeah um organizing roots yeah whatever, yeah so. wild and then did you find colibri while you're in school or did you find it afterwards? well i learned about colibri in a class called uh drug wars and oil fortunes of latin america and this huh. class was about all about like you know american intervention in latin america and like all these things that have happened in the 70s 80s and 90s to kind of destabilize latin america and eventually the class the class and the history that we learned was a build-up to like why does the border look the way it does why does our why is our immigration system and our border structured the way it is mm. what happens at our border and it was like a lead up to the u.s mexico border yeah and once we got to that section, um, we watched a little clip and it featured Dr. Robin Reinecke, who's the co-founder of Colibri, um, talking about Colibri and talking about death and disappearance in, in the desert. And that's how I learned about Colibri. And um, it was just like on my radar. And then it's just like, you know, serendipity or coincidence or whatever. But yeah. I, after college, I started working at a really, really, really huge nonprofit. Um, and I was, I really wasn't happy there. I, mm. you know, when you have a nonprofit that has a budget of millions and millions of dollars, like I, f I feel like there's something off about that. And there, there's a lot of activists that have a lot of feelings and, and disagreement with the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, like yeah. how, how are you, it gets weird. How do you have millions and millions of dollars, but you haven't solved your mission yet? Yeah. The purpose, the, the purpose of having a mission statement and a nonprofit is to make that mission obsolete. Yeah. To make your work obsolete. Yes. Yeah, so like, where's your, your job? A nonprofit exists because a terrible problem exists. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. your problem, your job. your job is to end that problem. Not to live off of it. Right. <laughs> so I was just seeing like extreme, uh, extremes amounts of waste. Ain't that some shit though? <laughs> ain't that some shit? God damn. Yeah. I never contextualized it like that to be like like they're they're created to solve a problem but then they end up living off of the problem. It's I never weird. saw it like that until this moment. No, like weird. that's what makes it so icky. Yeah, like for example, this I'm not I don't want to name it just cuz Don't name it, dog. But they one we're, of their we're like trying to get sued. <laughs> it's like a I know, it's like a they have a bunch of different like goals. Like, yeah. They have a bunch of different like projects and goals that they work on and right. one of them is uh to ch uh challenge or end hunger in southern Arizona. Mm. And Tucson you know, I, I read the stat that 25% of children in Tucson experience hunger. So food insecurity, we, I mean, we live in food deserts. The food insecurity in Southern Arizona and specifically Tucson, which is, which, you know, Tucson lives well above, well below the poverty line, the national poverty line. So mm. hunger is a real thing in, in the city. Mm. So they're trying to tackle hunger, right? But they have these meetings and convenings with people working on food justice and, and, and hunger, et cetera. But they just spent $500 on catering. The people you're feeding have homes to go to where they have food. Do you see how backward that is? Dog. <laughs> how are you trying? Uh, the resources are going the wrong way. And I had like, I really. That's right. That's it's so weird to see. <laughs> I know. And I just like felt so uncomfortable. Like I had chest pains every day going to work. It was see, just like. Going to work there, you have to have like a Jesus moment where Jesus like finds the fucking vendors at the church and be like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Just start flipping tables and shit. Yeah. Cause it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, mostly in that kind of environment, dog. You know what we call uh, that? You know what we call that? Mm. We call that out of touch with reality. 
that's what that is i mean yeah but yeah so then i i left there and i started uh working as an interpreter so i got certified to be an interpreter oh cool you know i love interpreting if y'all want to hire me for side gigs translating interpreting i got you um shit i'll let you know a shameless plug shameless plug <laughs> Respect. but i i really i really admire and enjoyed that profession mm. but there was uh act- actually dr roth gordon and some other colleagues that i work with in at u of a they sent me an email that colibri was hiring and i applied and i got an interview mm. but i wasn't hired for that position and like months went by of me working at this place as an interpreter on the phone miserable like mm. that's grueling work like that sh- that should br- fries your brain like yeah. to go back and forth back and forth between languages <sighs> oh my fr- my brain was fried Dude. every day and it was anything from like you know taking like a lunch order to giving someone a diagnosis of breast cancer wild to helping someone deliver a baby or <laughs> a-, a cop pulling someone over for a speeding ticket <sighs> just the range of clients that we had you know Dude. someone checking their bank account like the range of clients that we had was exhausting jesus like, christ i don't want my last call of the day some doctor telling a patient that they have some fucked up disease like that was so taxing on me right <laughs> it was like the physical like frying of my brain because interpreting is so challenging yeah and the topic i had to interpret like Ugh. so I didn't get hired. It's a bummer. I was really sad. But then I um, got a call a few months later to be a contract work, a contracted worker to do the missing persons intakes mm. at Colibri. And, you know, my contract was four months and I was supposed to be done at a certain time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of just like was a little nosy and like stuck my head and my nose in places I probably shouldn't have and mm. got like kind of more involved than I should have worked more hours <laughs> than I was getting paid for mm-hmm. happily because yeah. I loved the work that they were doing. And yeah. I was, you know, when you, when you start working at Colibri and you learn the, the, the core of our work, which is the missing migrant reports, yeah. the DNA, the database, all that, that's like the core of what Colibri does and is. Mm. Um, I just felt so connected to that and I felt so proud to be doing these reports. And, you know, like I said, Colibri is a very small nonprofit and one of our challenges is is capacity and, and um, right. not having, like the amount of calls and cases that we have doesn't match the personnel and mm. capacity and time. Yeah, of course. So I was really proud to be able to help with that and, mm-hmm. and, and really honored to be able to bring that call list down. Um, yeah from crazy number to like a less crazy number yeah um uh and then i kind of just stuck around and um was offered a part-time position and then eventually i was offered a full-time position as advocacy director and this position has never existed before so i've been Uh. really learning a lot about what it is to work and how like i i've learned on the job yeah of of course you're you're creating a whole new section to to a structure right and i've I've learned on the job and i'm grateful for that because now Mm -hmm. i feel like you know my ultimate my ultimate goal or my my next goal my next achievement that i want to reach is Mm -hmm. working on the hill and working in congress or Mm. working in dc on uh, uh, immigration justice issues yeah um and now i feel more than prepared to do that i i feel like i still have a little more work to do a little more experience to get under my belt yeah and then that's my next leap wow because that's where I feel like I need to go next. I yeah. don't know what's after that, but that's my next one, right? Um, and now, because I've learned on the job and like the strategy I was telling you, this game of chess you got to play, like yeah. how you talk to people, how you 
this like whole little game and i have been my former colleague to thank so much for teaching me how to work yeah what is this what and we're both kind of on the same boat like ben started the family network from nothing mm. um so we both kind of learned on the job we both were kind of like creating work for ourselves and making these connections and talking to these people and applying for this and mm -hmm. talking with the fan like it's just like the day-to-day -day grind of it i had to teach myself how to do of course um and i was you know because we're a small nonprofit, some of us are tasked with things that you know you may never have studied before that you don't have experience in mm -hmm. but you work your ass off and you learn and you do it because every little bit of work that we do is towards that mission right mm. the newsletter you know that the newsletter may seem like oh that has nothing to do with like finding missing people or identifying the dead newsletter the, the zine no we have a, a monthly newsletter that oh, okay. i cre i created and send out to our supporters oh, okay. um but you know maybe that newsletter connected with somebody in the press and they want to write a piece about colibri and then a donor mm. sees that and they write us a check and they love what we do and right. we can push our work forward pushes them more forward. it's all little things like that that are yeah, connected to the course. mission so gotta get more attention on it yeah i think i'm really grateful it, it's been stressful and it's been hard to mm -hmm. to balance that and like really learn how to manage your time and prioritize and yeah of course basically learn how to work yeah it's my first real career move mm. out of college and i got i got it so early out of college that i feel very blessed and grateful to, yeah. to the learning experience the connections that I've made, the networks that I've built. Mm -hmm. that's, never that's, thought. It's wild. In a million years, right? <laughs> so. That's wild. Yeah, that's how I learned about Colibri. Um, that's so. a turn. Where did the idea of, because uh, you're working on a project right now, a project you have, you're, you're, you're using um, a, a friend of the podcast, Ray Studio, mm -hmm. um, to produce. Yeah. What did the idea of, basically what you're doing is interviewing uh, family members of the missing or the disappeared and and letting them tell their story where did that come from and 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 how do you how do you expect to share that yeah so we um have a project called historias y recuerdos which mm. means stories and memories in spanish mm -hmm. and it is a oral history and oral testimony um project that we have where we when we travel to these different cities to meet with families in person mm -hmm. um we record like i said their oral history mm. how their family member disappeared how they came in contact with colibri what have they done to search for their loved one yeah and who their loved one is like who is this right. irreplaceable unique human being that you lost who yeah. are they to you why is their absence so significant what do you want to see change about the border or your search process mm. what are three things you want to know you want your you want the world to know about your loved one right mm. and the goals of this storytelling project is one always to inspire hope yeah. with other families that have the same situation yeah that's always number one number mm -hmm. two would be to raise awareness or elevate people's consciousness about the issue of death, death and disappearance on the border and just really how intense having a missing loved one is, right? Mm -hmm. And then third is to uh, humanize the missing person because, of course, you know, we, we never want to redu reduce a person who has a case with Colibri to just their disappearance story. Of course. They are much more than that. Who was, who is or was this person? Yeah 
before that moment of disappearance before that moment of migrating mm-hmm. who is this person yeah. like they are a unique human being that had a life that had a purpose that had importance that had love that had community they are a human being that didn't deserve this right mm. um so that's another um goal of the of the project and then lastly is to document uh document these abuses Mm. and to have history and document of these grave 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 human rights abuses that are happening like Mm. i mentioned earlier this we believe this is purposeful and it's connected to policy right and we are a human rights organization we are the colibri center for human rights states have a fundamental obligation to protect human life Mm. because that comes from the basic human right to life every human being that's alive has a right to be alive Mm. regardless that's Mm. like basic right yeah yeah so when a state or a government is knowingly and willingly endangering human human life Mm. you are violating the most basic human right and you need to be held accountable Mm. so if we document these stories document them in our database Mm -hmm. have these oral histories we can present this as official testimony we can present this as official evidence for these grave and massive injustices that are happening at our border right um so um what i do is like i said i travel to these cities i just went to new york Mm -hmm. and i did a a interview i've done three interviews in new york actually Mm. and basically how it goes is i i uh ask the family if they would invite me into their home so I can record their story and kind of break it down like I did. Like, what's the purpose of yeah. this? How is it going to go? What kind of questions am I going to ask you? How are we going to amplify it? Amplify it? Um, and I've been very fortunate to have very intimate and personal conversations with um, mothers, sisters, grandkids, sons, wives yeah. um, of missing people who are looking for them. And, you know, some families use it as a form of you know letting it out or coping some families use it as a form another way to get help in their search Mm -hmm. some families use it to give breath and give life and give hope to other families you know everyone approaches it in their own way of course um and there's like a consent process involved where they send consent forms um whether they want to you know remain anonymous use their name if they want this to be shared in the media if they only want this to be shared with families Mm. they have full control of that process we we don't dictate to them who we're going to share this with or yeah. they have to share or we're going to put it here you know it's it's all up to them and at any point even with dna they can withdraw themselves from right. any of our programs right of course so um i don't know I, we're still thinking through how to amplify them i know one way for sure we're going to amplify these um stories is on our new website so colibri is launching a new website mm. at the beginning of 2020 good um, our new web our current website is a little sad a little outdated <laughs> so we are um designing and developing a new one um, right now and it's going to come out and um the stories are going to be on the website but um we've been kind of thinking through how do we plug this into bigger media amplifiers or just you know strategic and critical partners that can amplify the story way louder than colibri can you know mm. colibri thinks of thinks of itself as like the content creator yeah. and the convener like we can bring families to the table all day long and right. we can we have the trust and the confidence in between us and the families that they're willing to share their stories with us because we approach their case in a human way. Yeah. We aren't a media company. We're not like, you know, I'm not a like 
media person yeah, i'm not yeah, a reporter yeah. i'm not none of that i'm not a journalist i'm an anthropologist and <laughs> so we we that. are looking for strategic partners to share these mm. uh these stories with and um i'm so that the the project is gonna have 24 interviews wow um it's funded through uh summer of 2021 so we still have you know another whole year wow to collect more stories i've i think i've collected 10 so far so okay. we're on a good track wow um and yeah like I, i'm not sure who those partners are yet we still have thankfully a little bit of time to think about who that is but they mm -hmm. will be featured on our website and um i have a kind of like a snippet of an, the interview i did in, in new york if oh, you cool. want to if you wanted to play it um on your podcast um be sure to listen to the end hmm? i'm just letting them know okay <laughs> <laughs> no but um just to kind of preface that story yeah the reason i always i always tell i always, whenever i ask a family are you willing to do this i like to tell them why okay every story is powerful and meaning and meaningful and important but there's some of them that just get you right here right yeah and i always like to tell families your case and your story needs to be heard because xyz mm. and this family um they live in jersey actually mm. they don't live in new york um, they live in in jersey um i met this family in may this year at new york missing persons day so remember i told you earlier that colibri is kind of limited in where we can search for people we yeah. can realistically only search for folks in the that, big cities no we can uh we oh yeah in, arizona. in, in yeah, southern yeah, arizona yeah, yeah, right course, so course, if somebody disappeared in california texas new mexico it's out of your hands it's a little bit out of our hands mm -hmm. but colibri doesn't work alone we we have um amazing amazing colleagues and partners that are also concerned with uh, identifying the dead and the missing yeah um and we have this really incredible partnership with the new york office of chief medical examiner mm. um they invited us to new york missing persons day in may um this is i think that's the second one we participated in mm. but basically um they facilitate um a relationship between us and the new york medical examiner for families who live in new york jersey pennsylvania and the tri-state area mm. that can get to new york basically um they uh go to new york and they are sampled for dna um by the new york medical examiner on wow. behalf of colibri why because the new york medical examiner is a governmental agency and they have access to a much bigger database of people uh, of unidentified remains um, than we do they have access to Whoa. CODIS and CODIS is the FBI's uh, federal DNA database that has the DNA of anybody that has ever been found deceased in the United States so they have access to that database so that means that they can search for people that have been recovered in Texas New Mexico and California right so we have Whoa. we have I'm telling you we, we get really creative <laughs> uh, in going around these bureaucratic roadblocks yeah, right for real um, we don't have access to CODIS yet. Um, mm -hmm. We're working on that. We're in active conversations and talks with the FBI to allow us to submit the DNA samples that we have collected to mm. compare to CODIS. And it's a it's an active conversation that you know seems to be going in the right way. That's awesome. Um, it just these things take time, of course. Um, so come on, FBI. Come on, FBI. <laughs> and then you know our partners in the Forensic Border Coalition are working really hard to to yeah, push yeah, that yeah. forward. Um, wow. Um, so the reason I met this family was because they participated in New York Missing Persons Day and mm. we took their DNA. Their father um, disappeared. His name is Mateo. 
Mm. Mateo Salazar, he disappeared in New Mexico, which is super rare. Most people disappeared, disappear in Arizona and Texas. Mm. Not so much California because California was kind of like the first frontier for border militarization. The first um, leg of prevention through deterrence, um, which was the part of the Border Patrol strategic plan in 1994, oh, possible, right? um, was to... Uh, you know, initiate Operation Gatekeeper, which mm. was like basically put up a fence and yeah. totally militarize the California border. So that's been cut off for a while. So most people now cross through Arizona and Texas. Right. And it's still a little bit rare for folks to cross through New Mexico just because of the landscape and the right. geography of it. But he disappeared in New Mexico and um, we invited this family to come and sample their DNA. And the reason why this family is so beautiful and so unique and interesting to me is because they show up to everything together. So usually uh, the way we see um, these cases go is that we have one contact person, maybe two, three. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only that one person that we're in dialogue with, that one person that shows up to meetings, that one person that submits their DNA. Right. For, for many reasons, you know, maybe they're the only one in the family that's here from the home country. Right. Um, or et cetera. Mm -hmm. But this family, they show up to everything together. Mm. They're a family unit and they're so solid and so united yeah. that I found I find that so beautiful that they're all holding each other so tightly through such deep pain. This man disappeared a little bit over a year ago. Mm. So it's still very fresh, I would say. Yeah. Um so they showed up to New York Missing Persons Day all together. We sampled all of them for DNA. Wow. Um and then they showed up to the first family network meeting in New York, all of them together. And then mm. this next meeting, um, or this last meeting that we had in New York this past weekend, they showed up together again. And I, I think that's so beautiful and so rare to see. Mm -hmm. um, so I asked them if I could come to their home and they agreed. We took an hour long train to Jersey yeah. from New York, from Manhattan. <laughs> and then um, another woman uh, whose mom we actually identified um, through Colibri, mm -hmm. um, she drove us to the, the rest of the way. Oh, She's wow. Just, such a sweet kind lady and you know mm -hmm. i know i think i feel like she is so grateful that we were able to help her help find her mom right that she is like a huge ally to our work and wow. wanted to help in whatever way she could we're really grateful and yeah i interviewed the whole family and each of them took turns explaining who they their relationship to mateo why his absence is so significant to them um what's their connection to mm -hmm. him individually and as a family mm -hmm. and what they've done to search and I'm telling you, this family has gone to lengths to look for him. They haven't been able to find him, find him. But mm. in the inner, in the clip, you can hear his granddaughter um, talking about how they drove from New Jersey all the way to New Mexico twice mm. to look for his remains or look for him in the desert with um, Angeles del Desierto, which is a search and rescue group. Mm who also have giant, giant hearts to be able to help in New Mexico because they typically they typically work in Arizona and Texas. Wow. Um, and they, they helped the family um, search twice. Wow. And the fact that they drove 30 plus hours two times, like God. imagine that. That's like, so much. That's a lot. So I, I thought their story was very special, mm. very unique. Um, it's in Spanish, but I'm happy to provide a transcription for yeah, that, people that, that want to. Just hear it in Spanish. Uh, for, well, funny. for people that, you know, don't speak Spanish, but still want to learn the story. Right. It's a very short clip. It's probably like a minute. Okay. Um, and coming in 2020, you all can hear the full interview the full on interview. the Colibri Center's um, website, which cool. we'll make a big announcement. Follow us on Facebook. It's Colibri Center for Human Rights. Um, Instagram is also Colibri Center for Human Rights. 
um and you can subscribe to our newsletter at colibricenter.org so you can keep up with what we do and um how you can support and be an ally so yeah that that project is probably one the most one of the the most intimate parts of my work mm. um i'm very honored and very grateful to step into people's homes and Fantastic. get so deep and in, into these stories thank you thank yeah. you for sharing that dude of course. um i think we'll leave it there we'll end it there and we'll play the clip that you 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 shared um i don't think you want to share your socials or nothing like that do you i mean yeah <laughs> you guys can follow me my socials are not tied to my professional work at all but like at all <laughs> <laughs> maybe y'all can see me get tagged in greg's post or something but yeah, yeah, yeah. i'll leave it there <laughs> bet, bet 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 all right well all right we'll, we'll play you off Brian. with uh yeah of course we'll play you off with the clip guys a las dos semanas que hablé con don rafael mi hermano ricardo y yo manejamos de new jersey a nuevo méxico fueron 36 horas en en carro mateo dolores alazar mi abuelo pero mejor dicho, mi papá. Él fue prácticamente quien, quien me crió. Mi mamá estaba joven, se vino para los Estados Unidos con mi papá y yo me quedé con, con mis abuelitos. El único tiempo que no estuve con mi, abuel, mi abuelito fueron los tres años que tardaron para traerme a los Estados Unidos. Pero desde entonces... Él ha sido quien está siempre ahí. Mi papá era un hombre muy um, como carismático, muy um, divertido, um, trabajador, mucho, 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 muy trabajador, uh, responsable. Um, no había día hasta enfermo él iba a trabajar. Le decíamos, quédate a, a, a descansar. No, él trabajaba, so, pero algo que lo, que lo define es eso. Él era muy, muy amigable. Amigable es, es la palabra. How was that? I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I, I personally did. Um, you probably could, should go check out Colibri if you haven't heard of them. If you have, then you know then you're probably just happy for the details that you got from this uh, episode. Thank you, Stephanie, for coming on. It was a pleasure. It was uh, it was nice to have this conversation, in all honesty. Um, yeah, yeah. It's crazy to think that's all happening. It's a thing that happens here in the Sonoran Desert, like two hours away from Tucson. People be doing that right now. It's just crazy to me. They're doing it for their families and stuff. Doing it for a better life. I can't even imagine. I'm so far removed from it. Personally, if I'm being honest. But it was a good conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it. hope you guys enjoyed that little snippet at the end. Um, Steph is conducting those interviews. I think. I am not sure. Um the completed interview is on their website i am not sure right now um but yeah if it is i'll put a link out there somewhere for you guys to listen to um yeah again march 14th the reading series 
Uh, yeah. I can't think of anything else. No? I'm gonna play you guys off with uh, Lossless by Q. This for you, Isaac. 